Good morning. I'm glad you're here, whether you're joining us here in the building, online, podcast, wherever you may be, we are so glad that you are here because God has something for you today. December 25th, 2021, the James Webb Telescope was launched from French Guiana into space to peer deep into our universe using infrared technology. You guys have seen some of this, right? It's been everywhere. The telescope was successfully positioned itself and went through all the checks, all that stuff. And then on July 11th, it began sending its first images back to Earth, and they are stunning. Let's look at this first one. This is apparently the Carina Nebula, which you guys would just know by looking at. It's very, very obvious. But that, this is where apparently new stars are born. This is a, truly we're seeing some things that the human eye has never witnessed before. The Carina Nebula. Here's another one from last week. The Cartwheel Galaxy. Yes, deep into space, infrared, the Cartwheel Galaxy. I don't know how far away it is, maybe as far as Grand Junction. For those of you not, who are joining us online, it doesn't mean anything. For those of you from Grand Junction, we're sorry, kidding. The Cartwheel Galaxy. Uh, we were able to look deep into space with a clarity never before seen. And, and then just two days ago, French scientist Etienne Klein released this photo of Proxima Centauri, the closest star to our sun. His quote with it said, this level of detail of the star is a new world revealed. And if you look closely, you can see the swirling gases and bursts. You can see that people were amazed on Twitter and online because they could see the ridges and, and, they, and, and, the, and where it intensifies. You can see the textures of the star. Um, this was something previously before unnoticed, and there's only one huge problem, fiery, spicy problem with this picture that Etienne Klein released and told us was Proxima, Klein, uh, Proxima Centauri. It, it, this is a piece of his own chorizo that he put on a black background <laughs> and released on Twitter. And, and the world was amazed at the detail of Proxima Centauri and, and, and the textures and the flares and the heat. And it's a piece of chorizo. You know, sometimes something so normal, so regular, so typical, so not wonderful. You know, we see with new eyes for a, a new, the first time before the joke was revealed. I mean, how many people out there have taken a piece of chorizo and really just inspected it that closely? I mean, if you're from Colorado, some people, you know, whoa, you know, they, they do check out their chorizo. But for most of us, we've never actually sat down and taken in the ridges of the meat and the fats, how they play, none of us until this week. And, and you see, there are some things that are unseen, that are unnoticed and unworthy, like a piece of chorizo that suddenly become the center of attention for all the wrong reasons. Which leads us to Genesis 16 today. We are in this Genesis series. If you're just joining us online or here in the building, we have been going through the book of Genesis. We are seeing what, how God's truth, it reveals his nature and what it says about him. We're also seeing how in Genesis, the first book, how the gospel of Jesus and how Jesus himself is revealed in this first book. Just a reminder, if you're new with, if for those of you who are with us, but if you're new with us, this will be something for you to know. The Orchard, um, I don't know if you know this, we are an imperfect church of imperfect people. 
learning and trying to live to be more like a perfect Savior. And there are a few hills that this church will stand on. And the first one above all, all worldly issues is we have Jesus above all things. Above all affiliations and political parties and problems and pandemics, it's Jesus. It's why we can be together and be united under that banner. We say all the time here, we keep the main thing, the main thing at the orchard, and the main thing is Jesus. We also take him at his word when he said the Bible is summed up in two things, love God and love people. All people, no asterisks. We believe God's word is also the authority. We believe God's word is the revelation of his nature. And so today we are studying God's word, and we are in Genesis 16 to see something that was before unseen and unnoticed, that for all the wrong reasons is now visible. Now we have been following a man and his wife, Abram and Sarai. Abram, you'll remember, God made a covenant with him to make him a great nation, to give him titles and, and lands and, and millions of descendants. And he goes on and he, he actually says, I'm going to give you a son. But there's a sticking point in the story. Abram and Sarai, this couple of promise, they don't care about the millions of descendants. They're concerned about the one child because she's barren. She's beyond childbearing years. She can't have a baby. God's promise was so ridiculous to them, it's laughable. And if you read the text, both of them at different times laugh that this would be, that God would even say this. Like, are you, are you kidding me, God? Are you serious? And some of us have situations in our life that seem so complicated. We're in so deep. We're in such a mess that God says, I can, I can rescue you. I can give you freedom. I can move. I can make a way. And we just go, oh, God. You have no idea how bad my marriage is, or you have no idea how bad my private life is. He does. Sometimes it's laughable, but God has something for us. He has something for us today. God gave Abram and Sarai a promise of, of this children and descendants and this nation and this son. And then, remember, 10 years go by and nothing happens. No, no flutters of, of baby, no pregnancy, no like baby bump pictures, nothing. Sarai, if you remember, she comes to this, this, uh, this uh, idea that she's going to help God accomplish his promises with her power. And so she goes to Abram and says, how about you marry and go sleep with my slave? Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham considers this genius idea and says, after he'd been living in Canaan for 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. So here we have Hagar, this Egyptian slave girl, most likely picked up 10 years previously or even before then by Sarai and Abram when they were living in uh, Egypt during a time of famine. And I want to take today a closer look at this slave girl, Hagar. Being a slave, Hagar was likely purchased when she was very young, um, and then it's been 10 years since then. She was, two things likely happened to her. During the famine, her parents died. And she was abandoned. Or at some point, her parents sold her for some gold, for some food. For 10 years, she's been in the house of Sarai. She's probably in her, I'm guessing, late teens, early 20s at this point. And if you're Hagar, life has not been kind to you. If her parents had died, that would mean that Hagar was born into a world without love. Her mother didn't hold her. Her father didn't dote over her. He didn't watch her with a smile as she turned in her new, her new dress. No. She would have been raised in a slave orphanage, and she would have been put to work the moment she was capable 
of work. I would say her youngest memory would be working as a slave, but that, would, that wouldn't be right. Her only memories would have been working as a slave. She would have no other memories if that was her life. For a young Egyptian slave girl, there were no rights. There was no law of protection. Surrounded by people who had the power over her body and her decisions at any moment. She would likely have been raised with a fair amount of abuse at, at worst and neglect at best, and probably both. If her parents had been impoverished and sold her, then her earliest memories may be of that loss and that terror as a little girl of her mom and dad saying goodbye and watching her life be exchanged for some gold or some food. Couple that with the treatment of the slave trader who would have purchased her and now owned her as property. I say all this because I often tell you, if you've been with us for long enough, I often tell you, like when you read a Bible account, when you read a narrative or story, uh, since we know the spoiler alert at the end, <laughs> he comes back to life, you know, since we know a lot of what's happening, um, we, we don't get what's actually going within it. And I tell you oftentimes to put yourself in the story, to feel it, to smell it, to sense it, to see what it's like to be Hagar. To see what it's like to, to, have, have, to, to even get a taste of the terror that her childhood would have been. Hagar has likely had a very difficult childhood full of trauma and full of abuse. She was raised as a slave, and Hagar would have learned one very important truth that was her number one priority in her day-to-day -day life, and that was this. Do not be seen. That would have been her priority. For a slave girl, to be noticed would always bring pain or abuse or unwanted attention or unwanted affection. She learned to slip into a room, complete her tasks silently, clean, wash up, and leave. She was less than ordinary as long as she could stay unnoticed. If she could do that, another day may pass without incident. And then, at some point, she was given to Sarai. We read about it in Genesis 12, where it likely happened. The Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, treated Abram with favor. And it says that because of Pharaoh's treatment, Abram acquired sheep and goats and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants and camels. Servants, female servants. Let's put a name to it. Hagar. So she begins to travel with this new family. And along the way, she, she sticks to the sides of the room. She does her task with her, her priority, don't be seen. But she begins to hear the discussions of the other work, of the other servants, of the other help. She begins to hear the talk of, the, of her master mistress who, who talk in front of her as if she's not there because they might view her as, as furniture. She begins to hear the whispers of a promise. Whispers of a promise from God for this family, for her master, for her mistress, the mistress whom she serves personally. This old woman, Sarai, is, is rumored that she's going to be the matriarch of a mighty nation. And her, her master, Abram, he will be a patriarch of lands and, and titles and, and descendants. And like, they even said the whole world would be blessed through him. 
She hears these problems. Hagar hears all these promises, but she knows the problem. Everyone knows the problem in the household. Sarai, her mistress, is barren and old. How can this woman have a son who will save this dead-end family tree and turn it somehow into a mighty nation? But, but, but Hagar knows. I don't, I don't get involved. I'm not going to speak up. I'm not going to say anything. Do not be seen. Don't be noticed. And 10 years later, perhaps she's combing her mistress's hair when her mistress Sarai comes to an alarming idea. She sees her mistress, mistress turn and consider her in a new way. Noticing her, seeing her in a new way. She doesn't know what it is, but Sarai says, follow me. And Sarai takes her to Abram, and it's there that Hagar hears this terrifying new plan. As she hears Sarai say, Abram, take my servant as your wife to bear me a son. Hagar goes from invisible, where she's safe and comfortable, to the center of attention. Hagar is property, yet she's being discussed as part of the promise. Notice that Sarai doesn't even ask Hagar her opinion. They're not in there like chatting and go, so Hagar, about Abram, I mean, I know he's old, but what do you think? There is a certain charm about him. He's, he's funny. She doesn't ask Hagar a thing. You don't ask the servants what, you want, what they want to do. You tell them. She goes to, she goes to Abram, and, he, and, and Abram, he says, whatever you want. And, and Hagar goes from slave to wife in one day. And as I was thinking through this, Hagar has been with them for 10 years-ish, let's say, 10, 12 years. I don't think in any of those times, in that decade, Abram ever considered where Hagar was sleeping or if she was comfortable or how she slept. I didn't think of her at all. Suddenly, she goes from wherever that was and how that was to in the bed of the master. Suddenly, she's married. She goes from property to part of the promise. Well, Sarai's plan works all too well, and Hagar conceives. And when Hagar conceives, somebody becomes very upset about it. And in my memory, in my recollection, I always remembered it as being Sarai who was upset, like full of jealousy, like, oh, I couldn't have a child in there. My servant is already pregnant. Jealousy. But it's not Sarai who's upset. We read this. When Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to, mis- she began to treat her mistress Sarai with contempt. Hagar despising Sarai. Now the text doesn't give us all the reasons, but we can imagine some of what it may be. Hagar who was unimportant, unseen, unnoticed her entire life is now the one who carries this powerful promise that her mistress could not, placing her who she was down here, but, but, but could she move from property to promise carrier to position of authority. You know, perhaps going from property to promise carrier made her reconsider her position and that of her mistress. 
Whatever the reason, it says that Hagar begins to treat her, Sarai with contempt. And, 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 and Sarai is not pleased that her slave is now, her sister wife is now treating her this way. So what does she do? She goes to Abram. Then Sarah said to Abram, this is your fault. I mean, I can just see him in there watching the ESPN. He's like, what? My fault? I put my servant in your arms, but now she's pregnant. And she treats me with contempt. Notice she doesn't say, your wife, my servant. Abram just cast the situation back to Sarai. Look, she is your servant. So deal with her as you see fit. Neither one mentions anything about a promise or any new position. They all mention property. She's still property. To hear this back and forth, it must have been crushing to Hagar. She thought she was the carrier of a promise. She thought she was finally someone. She thought she was a wife of destiny. She thought she was, but no. She is who she's always been. A servant, a slave. She had no rights. She thought she had rights, but she didn't. She thought she finally had a say in how things would go for her life. Ended up she had no say, still. She thought she finally had something of worth. She's still a slave with others deciding her fate for her. Sarai, emboldened by Abram's word, turns to Hagar and decides it's far time to put this servant girl back in her place. And it says, Sarai treated Hagar so harshly, she finally ran away. Now, I don't think Sarai abused her physically because, again, she's carrying the promised child, they think. But I believe that Hagar was constantly, consistently reminded of her true position. Remember who you are. Hagar, Egyptian slave girl property. You heard my husband say it himself. What is most important about you is not who you are, Hagar. It's once again, what you can do for the family. And what you can do for the family is to carry this baby and be silent. Hagar was used to being unseen. She was used to being safe in that area. She was used to being invisible, but now Hagar is seen, but she's only seen as a means to an end. She's worse off than before, and in her heartbreak, in her desperation, she flees. And she flees the situation, and she runs away. And I just want to tell you something. As I was putting myself in Hagar's position in her life, from the time she was a child to this moment when she finally runs away, it occurred to me, I bet she had laid in bed for decades every night as a, as a four-year-old, as a seven-year-old, as a nine-year-old, as a teenager, just dreaming of just run away. I could run away from all of this and finally be free of it. I believe that she had thought about running away her whole life. Finally letting, getting away from having somebody else make her decisions for her. And that young girl would lay there and think about it, but never had the courage or enough reason to. But now she carried within her, her child, her baby, and there was something on the line. And finally, it gets so bad that she packs up in the middle of the night and she makes good on the dream that she's had since she could remember to run away and finally make a decision for herself. The first decision she's ever made for herself was to leave. She's out there in the desert. And as I thought about Hagar, it occurred to me she has been failed by every single human in her life. Her parents failed her somehow. 
Her slave traders failed her. Her mistress, Sarai, failed her. Her master-turned-husband, Abram, failed her. She had known her whole life that it was only her she could depend on. And once again, with crushing reality, it's proved again. And I say all that because it's with that emotion, it's that girl in that desperate place, in that desperate, dry desert where something happens that is so amazing, so, so challenging that it has baffled theologians and sages for thousands of years. Because the next verse is one that humanity would never write into the story. Because in humanity's eyes, Hagar doesn't matter. She would pass through this narrative and never be mentioned, and again, never been seen, because she is an afterthought to the people of her time. She's invisible. She's unworthy. Now she's gone, and she's unseen again safely inside her world of unseen. And with that, we turn to Genesis 16, verse 7. It's in that place, in that time. The angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness along the road to Shur. The angel of the Lord found Hagar. And let's be honest, no one else is going to. There's no search party for this pregnant single mom at this point. But notice who finds her. It says, does it, does it, put it back up there, please. Does it say an angel? It says the angel of the Lord found her. As you read the Old Testament, and notice that it's all capitals in the word Lord. Leave that up there for a second. As you read the Old Testament, from now on, from now on, whenever you see a mention of the angel, the angel of the Lord, with all capitals on Lord, Alarms should start going off. And as Stacy preached last week, you should stop, drop, and listen because God's about to say or do something in this story incredible. Because in the Old Testament, when it mentions not just an angel, not just a messenger of the Lord, not a cherubim, not a seraphim, or even an archangel like Michael or Gabriel, when it says the angel of the Lord, that's what we call a theophany. And a theophany is a unique moment when God's very presence manifests visibly in humanity's world. There are unique mentions of this throughout the Old Testament. I, I would love to do a whole teaching on them sometime. And we're going to get to some of them in Genesis. Oftentimes in my study and opinion and those of many theologians, theophanies are when Jesus himself steps into the Old Testament. Now, we know from our John study, if you've been with us, that, that Jesus has always been. He has no creation. He's fully God. He was present at creation. But, but I just want to tell you something. Jesus wasn't a part of creation and then, like, stepped back and, like, started stretching. You know, I got to be Jesus in a couple thousand, you know, ten years. So, oh, I'm just going to take it easy and get ready to be Jesus. I'm just going to take it easy and, and wait. No, no. He's active. We begin to see Jesus active in the Old Testament. Now, he's not present, I don't think, in his fleshly form of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, but he is in his glorified form as the Son of God. You guys, Hagar is on the run, and none other than Jesus shows up to find her. Jesus finds a fleeing servant girl who's known nothing in her life but heartache and hard work. 
He finds her and he says, Hagar, Sarai's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? Now, if you turn to the New Testament and read Jesus and how he talks to people, this is the most Jesus thing ever. I mean, he asks a blind man, what do you want? Like, he asks the obvious question because he wants to engage their heart and draw their story out of them. Jesus knows where she came from. He knows where she's going. She says, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. Jesus begins at this point to then begin to speak life to Hagar. He tells her that the child that she carries, he says, I have promises for him too. I have promises for him. Yes, he's going to have his struggles and he will be at war with his his brothers, but, but he will not be a slave like you. He will be raised in the household. You will raise him and he's going to become a mighty nation. And to a a fleeing, newly single mother in the desert, hearing promises about her son and herself, that is more precious than water. Hagar sits there. You gotta imagine. Hot and sweaty, tear-stained, tired, spent, lost. And she hears the good news from Jesus wash over her. And at that moment, she is transformed. We know that Hagar understands that this angel isn't just some person. We know for a fact that Hagar understands this angel isn't just some divine messenger. Because from the lips of Hagar come a praise that will forever be known. She says, she says this, you are the God who sees me. What is it she's wanted her whole life? What's been the safest place for Hagar her whole life? Don't be seen. But you see me. And she uttered this from, this is uttered from the lips of a little girl who had watched her life be sold for some gold. You see me. This is spoken from the quivering voice of a girl who had grown up learning to be invisible and not be seen. You see me. This is from the dry mouth of a young woman who knew that to be seen by a powerful man was, was to be in danger, yet here, the all-powerful God of the universe, you see me. From the eyes of a girl who had only been seen by others as a means to an end, you see me. From the heart of a woman who had never been seen by another human for who she truly was, you see me. And this is from the soul of a woman who'd never been looked at by another person as having any intrinsic value or having anything worth loving. You see me. From the spirit of a woman who from the days of her first memories had never even seen her own worth. You see me. And Hagar declares to you, the abused, the washed up, the discarded, the sin-stained, the forgotten, the divorced, the left behind, the used, the left for nothing, that there is a God who sees you, who sees your worth, who sees your value. 
He sees your loneliness. He sees your loss. He finds you where others have discarded you. He finds you where powerful people in your past have tried to define you. He sees you. He finds you and sees you for who you truly are and who he wants you to be in him. He is the God who sees you. And no matter the reason you feel unworthy today or cast aside or too damaged or too sin-stained or your past is too rough or you're too wounded, God sees you. And he loves you. He finds you and lets you know that he has promises for you. He wants you to know that you are, well, you're his. You're his. That you aren't defined by the nightmares of your past. And he wants to define you by the dreams he has for you in the future. That you aren't the sum of your sin, but instead you are the results of his son's sacrifice. He sees you. You aren't too broken. He sees you. You aren't too wounded. He sees you. Your private tears, unseen pain, that night that no one knows about, they're not invisible to him. He's seen every one of them. He sees you. Your solitary struggle, your loneliness, you aren't hidden from God. You're precious. You're his daughter. You're his son, and he sees you. And that his healing and his hope and his promises can break through even the most tragic of pasts and most entrapping and enslaving of presents to reveal a good future. Because it's the God who finds you, the God who sees you, the God who calls you to a destiny beyond where you are. Hagar was on this road because of what was done to her, but you may be on a road like this because of what you have done to yourself. Other people made decisions that she fled from, but oftentimes for us, let's be honest, we make decisions that then we begin running. Running from our, own, from our own selves. Running from the mess that we've created. There'll be, in, the, in, the, in that running, there's thoughts of shame and guilt because you know what you've done. You know what you've been involved in. You chose sin and in the shame you have run and hid and perhaps you've been hiding for decades but your private world hasn't gotten any better, has it? You hoped it would get better, but your private world has only gotten darker and more lonely. But he sees you. He finds you. He loves you. And he calls you. You aren't too far gone. You're never too far gone for God's grace and freedom. He sees you. You aren't too messed up or too much of a mess. He sees you. He finds you. He sees you in your sin and he calls you from it. He sees you in your vice and he calls you and offers you freedom. And he wants you to know that no matter what you've done and where you've been, you are his beloved daughter. You are his beloved son. And he has promises for you in the future that you can't even see for yourself. Now, well, may, you may define your life. And while you may think your life is still defined by your sin and your past, 
God defines you based on his son's work and sacrifice. He sees you for how you are, beloved, forgiven, and called. You aren't too far gone, he finds you. You aren't too far deep in, he sees you. You aren't too damaged, he loves you. And you aren't too messed up, he has good things for you. He is the God who sees And what's amazing is throughout the Bible, this is incredible as I thought this, throughout the Bible, God, it's God who declares who he is. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. God declares who he is. I am the great I am. I am Yahweh, Jireh, your provider. I am Yahweh, Rapha, your healer. It's always God who declares himself, except, (laughs) except for one place. A slave girl who'd never been known or valued. A servant girl who'd never made a decision on her own except for to run away. A slave girl who'd never declared anything to anybody that was worth remembering. She says, you are the God who sees me, which means El Roy, the God who sees. And her declaration isn't discarded by God. Guess what he does? This discarded, desperate slave girl gives a declaration and God puts it on like a crown and says, I am the God who sees. This is the place, the only place where someone gives God a name like this. And he wears it because he sees you. He is El Roy, the God who sees. It's even more amazing. Hagar, she grew up in the Egyptian culture, and in the Egyptian gods and goddesses, they were all very visible and seen. We see them even today in their icons and statues and, and idols or, or the sun or the moon. They worshiped all the gods and goddesses were seen. But there in the desert, she met someone unlike any of those idols. Those idols, she'd all seen them, but they'd never seen her. And there in the desert, she meets the almighty God who sees her. And, and she went back and she told everyone, she must have, she must have told everyone her testimony because it says in verse 14, even Moses hundreds of years later, they said, we call this place, it's called the well of the living one who sees. She knew idols, she knew statues, she knew those gods and goddesses so she could see, but she met the living one who could see her. Genesis 16, what does it teach us? That God sees us in our hardship. It also shows that Hagar, she saw Jesus in her hardship, which makes me ask a question, what you're going through right now, where is Jesus in it? For some of us, we need to, in your hardship, in your desperation, stop and say, where are you in this? He's present, he's there, he's with you. He loves you, he calls you, he's got promises for you. Genesis 16 reveals that God shows up for the most discarded and desperate person and reveals that he has love and promises for her. And you? (laughs) He's gone way beyond that for you. You know what he did for you? He sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for you. And Jesus gave up his life, breathed his last breath, and resurrected for you. Because he sees you and he calls you, my son, my daughter. I have promises. I have goodness for you still. So here's the deal. Don't you dare give up hope. 
Don't you dare give up. Don't you dare let those in the past define you by what they've told you because the one that sees you, he has a new definition for your life. Don't you dare let the enemy tell you who you are because you have a God, El Roy, who sees you and calls you and promises you good things. He's the living one who sees. I don't know what you are in today, whether you're following this on podcast or online or here in the building, but I know this as God is moving and speaking. I, can, I, can, I, can, I know you're, what you, some of you are in and the desperation and the lonely, the crushing loneliness and some of us, the enslaving vice of sin of a private world. And today, El Roy, the God who sees, he would whisper to your heart, I see you. I know you. I love you. I forgive you. I have good things for you. On a day like today, there are people in here who need some extra prayer. And so I'm going to ask some of our prayer people and some elders if you'd be back in the back over there. If you're online, you can type in a private message to the church or you can email me. But we want to, we want to pray over you. For the rest of us, I want you to take a moment either in communion or in the quietness of your heart and bring your desperate position, your desperate circumstance to God and say, do you see me? Where are you? Father God, El Roy, El Roy, the God who sees us, today in your kindness, would you reveal where you are in our story? Because some of us are so lost and so lonely and so broken and so needy. We need you to show us again. Reveal yourself. Reveal yourself.